you've just heard is a composition written by Mr. Michael Skinner, but he's also a mental health advocate who lives in New Hampshire. Michael, welcome to the program. Uh, your voice is a very welcomed facet and genuine and authentic. Certainly, you have had more than the average person's uh, series of encounters with this very serious topic. I believe it began with your mother. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother's experience with suicide and, moreover, your discovery of such an event about the age of eight or nine? There was there was a lot of confusion and I guess confusion and uncertainty, but that was the rule of the of that household anyways. But there was definitely um, major concern and I had never seen my father um, get emotional and and my mother had been brought to the hospital in an ambulance and uh, you know, again, we we could ask questions, but you wouldn't get answers. And so I can't remember how many days she was gone, but when she came back, her you know her wrists were all bandaged up. And again, it was uh, just hush hush. In but I knew something was wrong. I was just, was there any attempt even to come up with a, a a a fake reasoning or explanation behind it, or was it just never addressed? You know. To be honest with you, they may have, but I just don't think it was addressed. It was just there was no communication in that household in in that respect. So, but again, uh, my memory, I something may have been said, but I honestly can't remember. I just it, to me, it was the silence. It was don't talk about it, and even neighbors or friends coming over for their friends, there was just this hush hush, and they were talking. So yeah, yeah, there was a silence. They were talking in lower tones of voice, so we, uh, the kids, could not hear whatever was being discussed. Some years back, you wrote regarding your parents elsewhere. You said my parents were evil and dark in what they did, right. causing one to have their spirits crushed. What was that like? It felt horrible, and I. I still have elements of that because they dehumanized you because it wasn't, and again, I'm not, I don't not minimize this. There was the childhood sexual abuse, but there was also just the emotional abuse. You were berated. You, you were never good enough. If I brought home a report card with A's and one B, that was, I, I was made to feel foolish for that. And they, Nothing was nothing was satisfactory, is that it? Nothing. No matter what I did as a child, could I please them? Mm. And I was, I mean, I was working as a kid. I, I had part-time jobs as a young boy and different things. There was nothing I could do. And I was a smart kid, you know, and, and being told that you're stupid, worthless, lazy, no good. So that does cut to the core. So... 
physical abuse, sexual abuse, those things are horrible. But that emotional piece, that that that, that just stays with you. It, 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 I just felt that it, it went into my soul, my spirit, who I, my psyche, and I've wrestled with that my whole life, that I was never good enough. You know, childhood sexual abuse makes you feel dirty and damaged inside, and then you have your parents just, they keep heaping this on you that you're no good. And this ties in later on when I'm an adult trying to get help, and I'm reaching out for people for help, and I've always kept to myself. And then the way I was mistreated or not treated, I just, it was just a, a way for me to say, oh, gosh, I guess, you know, my parents are right. I am no good. I'm worthless. I'm lazy. I don't I don't deserve help. So I didn't feel good inside. I, I was always afraid to have the family secrets come out. I didn't want anyone to know because mm. I didn't. I didn't, because I felt horrible inside. And... Right, right. Uh, I haven't divulged this prior to now to my audience, but uh, I, I don't mind doing it because it's it's relevant to what you're saying, and I think we have a point of identification. In my very early years, I came from an extremely dysfunctional background um, with uh, substance abuse, and one of the things that happens is if you come from a dysfunctional background, you spend an inordinate amount of energy trying to act normal, right. trying to be normal, trying to, if you will, gulp down and swallow the fact that when you go to a friend's house, you recognize it's radically different from your own experience. How did you handle that as a child? <laughs> what you just said, boy, uh, that rings true. I, I remember going to friends' homes and just I was like awestruck, and I'd be looking around. It's like because to hear a parent or both parents complimenting their kid or asking mm. me, "You want something, Michael?" or just being nice to me—that was, was it. Was like, disorienting, wasn't it? It was, it was. It was very confusing. It was nice, but I did not know what to make of it. Sitting down at the breakfast table or for dinner, if if I was invited over for dinner. And asking me, how was your day, or what did you do today? I was like, I, I wasn't doing it, but I felt like my face was dropping. Like, wow, what's going on here? It was so, it was so surreal. It was nice, but it just—I did not feel that I belonged. And, and you, you felt know, fraudulent. I right, and the same thing in school. I just felt like I mm. did not belong. That if people really knew, or the kids knew, they would not be talking to me and so yeah i i never felt like i belonged i've i've always and i've said this to friends i could be in a room full of people and i still feel all alone now you had success in the 1970s in a very significant way you went to my land the united kingdom and you were uh, a rock musician there a drummer for a band uh you were in par in some circles as as you have shared with acdc and you're making more money than you've ever made before uh, you arrive into the early 1990s, and as you've said elsewhere, this guy's got it all, most people would think. He's got a successful business, he's got a beautiful family, and yet, and yet, in the midst of this success, you entertain the idea of taking your life. I, I just, I never, I never felt good about myself. Um, I used to put my, I can look back now, and I used to wonder, I would go into bars 
places, and I would get into some really horrible fights and different things. And I, I was in situations I shouldn't have been in. I was in the wrong places. But I, I wondered, was that a death wish? I honestly can't tell you if it was, or was I just addicted to the excitement? I don't know. But so yeah, come '93, the depression has hit me, and you know the flashbacks, and I just. I did not feel good anymore, and, so, and this just reinforced that. Yeah, you're, you know, no matter what I've done, um, I'm not worthy. And I actually is. I know now it was wrong, but my thinking was twisted. I actually thought I'd be doing my family a favor by ending my life. Let me ask you a question about that. Uh, if it's not too personal, by what means were you considering killing yourself? Actually, I, I did it. I ingested a, a vast amount of um, the psychiatric drugs that I was on. Yes. Let me ask you, Michael, when you were considering taking your life, did you consider what the next experience would be? I mean, uh, were you thinking of non-existence, that you'd be totally out of it, or did you envision some kind of nirvana or heaven or perhaps even uh, uh, hell or desperation what did you think was beyond the veil if you were to take that route i thought that somehow i would i would still be punished for doing this i didn't know what was beyond the veil i i i don't i'm spiritual i believe in love i believe in light i do believe in something i don't know what but i I felt in doing this that I was just dooming myself for for eternity, and yet I I couldn't take the pain anymore, Alan. And right. I really thought that yes. I would be helping my wife and my children because I had insurance policies. They would have the house, all that. I would be gone and out of their lives, and that's I I know that's twisted. I, I also feel strongly that the a lot of the psychiatric drugs I was on was also twisting my thoughts with this. But I was also just, but to be fair, I was just in such a dark, deep despair. I, I was in a hole, a black hole, um, and I couldn't climb out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a program called Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell. And my special guest in this segment is Michael Skinner. He is a musician and also a very strong mental health advocate who lives in New Hampshire. Uh, he is deeply concerned because of his own experience and that tragically of his mother and his two brothers with suicide. He himself tried to take his life, although fortunately we can say now from this vantage was not successful. Let me ask you a rather subtle question, and there is a difference here, and perhaps you will get the gist of what I'm asking did you want to die, or did you no longer want to live? Because there is a difference. Ah, um, I wanted to get away from the pain. I, I didn't want to... Oh. I wanted to die. I just... I, I, I wanted to die, and I just, again, I just felt that I'd be doing my family a favor. I felt that was, I felt that was a burden. The the old tapes of childhood were just playing nonstop. That you're no good. You're worthless. See, mm -hmm. you've screwed it up again. So, um, 
So did you feel that you'd failed in particular your wife and your children? Was that the key component? I truly did. They were my, um, oh, God, I'm getting (laughs) emotional. That's all right. They meant everything to me. I, Alan, I learned how to love from my children. You know, my my daughters, you know, as parents, we we do teach and we love, we care. But Mm. uh, I learned so much from my children. I I cared for my wife, but I didn't really learn to love her till I learned how to love from my children. And then I could, I did learn to love others, and I, I do love people now. But when did you, when did you, Michael, learn to love yourself? Uh, probably about, I would say, in the last five to seven years. Not sixty-five. That was a long time. What was key to that? I finally found peace with it. I about ten or twelve years ago, I learned to like myself, and just so many people around me that liked me, and I started believing. I said, "No, I'm 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 a good person. I'm." I've always been a good person. I'm a good human being, and I started to believe that. And then within that last five to seven years, I tr- I just learned to love myself, that I'm at peace, that, no, I'm a good human being. Horrible, I experienced horrible things, or they were done to me, but that wasn't my fault. I didn't do that. It was done to me. So I was able to turn it around that, no, things were done to me. It was what happened to me. It's not that what's wrong with me, that I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I learned to value that. And, and I started thinking about it. And my gosh, you know, people really care for me. So there must be something to this. I'm not stupid. You know, so if they like me and they care for me, and I, I had, you know, male friends, you know, that would hug me and say, Michael, I love you. And I'm, I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't comprehend that. But, and these were, you know, they could be, Men of all different sizes, they just, uh, they were big strapping men, just letting me know that they loved me, women friends uh, that loved me as for who I am. And I finally took it in that people cared for me, loved me, and I, I learned to love myself. Michael, uh, earlier you had alluded, uh, had referenced the fact that you had been sexually abused. Was it by family members or friends? or? It, it, this is, it was both parents. And wow. they belong. It was both parents, and this is what really. So both your parents sexually molested you. Correct. Yes. And and then there was a congregational church, not the whole church, but there was a pastor, and my mother was part of that, and she used to. They they fed me to other pedophiles. And I was, you know, either with them or with other adults doing things to me or being made to do things to adults. Or I remember other children being made to do things with children. But the, the, it started with both parents. When you have such abuse, and we, we hear about this routinely now, ad nauseum about various clergy people violating their position of trust. When you have been the victim of such an extreme egregious abuse of power and authority, uh, particularly with one who represents God and the divine, did you find it extremely confusing and almost impossible to believe in a good God? I, as a child, I, re- I thought of, 
I thought it was a bunch of crap. I wanted to say the bull word, but I just, I thought it was, um, I didn't know the word ludicrous or hypocrisy back then as a seven or eight year old, but that's, they were, they were talking tongues, you know, they'd say one thing and do another. You know, my mother would be beating me with a belt or breaking rulers off of me and quoting scripture. Um, something was wrong with that picture. I did not. Uh, so, so when people said, you know, turn to God a prayer, and I, you know, I wasn't using the F word back then as a kid, but I learned to use it later on. But that's what I felt. I says, no, this is, this is a lie. I would, you know, as an adult, I just come to see, no, it wasn't the whole congregation or not that everybody that is religious is a pedophile. It's just as the pedophiles walk amongst them. Did that cause complications for your adult sexual life later on in life? Um, what it caused for me, Alan, was for the longest time was I was just highly promiscuous. Mm-hmm. Um, that was I. Were um, you? Were you? And I don't mean by being abusive to your sexual partners, but sometimes there can be an element of sexuality which is an acting out of anger. And no, so, I, and that was the one thing that I, I, I wanted tenderness. I just wanted to be held and hugged. Yes. At the end of the day, uh, and I, I've shared this in sometimes when I'm talking or amongst friends. If if I had just learned to ask for a hug, I wouldn't have been as promiscuous. Well, as I uh, how can you trust a hug when you know from your very point of origin in your family, a hug is perverted. And very often leads to other things. So, I mean, you just needed a genuine, benign expression of affection. But it seems to me that that was, from what you're telling us, is totally distorted and contorted and virtually impossible for you to experience. I did not experience. It was um, my parents didn't care what happened to you. So even for myself, I had to learn as an adult if, my falling off a bike or falling down the step, whatever, and that, wow, you know, I, I learned empathy through my kids because I didn't get that. And you grow up with what you, you know, if you weren't taught these things, it's um, a role model. It, it, it's very confusing. So, yeah, just like when we were talking earlier about being over friends' homes and you know, the, the the loving parent, the caring parent being nice to you and nice to their kids, uh, it's just, it's a disconnect. It's, it's foreign. So let's go back to the incident when you tried to take your life. So you imbibe and consume vast quantities of drugs, which you know are going to have certainly deleterious effects on you and, and induce death. So you plan and hope and, and think. What happened to prevent that from actually occurring and coming to fruition? I, it was late at night, probably, it was after midnight, may have been one, maybe two in the morning, and I, I called my brother Wayne, and he was the third, he was the middle child, he was, um, and I just wanted to say to him, I, I wanted to apologize to him, and I, for 
not fully understanding when his depression had hit, and I wasn't as supportive as I wish I could have been, but I just didn't. My understanding as a young man was, oh, you just pick yourself up by the bootstraps, go back to work, because that was the one thing about myself and all my siblings. We all worked hard, and I just I would say, just just go back to work. Just And I wasn't as supportive as I could have been or wish I might have been or... And he said, Mike, it's okay, it's okay. And then he said, what's going on? And he he figured out, I said, well, it's okay. When he goes, no, something. And he, he knew right away, so he called 911. So the and medics that, came over to the house at that point? Were they pounding on the door? Yeah, the police and the uh, medics, they came in. Michael, let's go back to that particular, was it nighttime you did this or daytime? Okay. Tell me the few hours before. What's going on in your mind? What were you doing? Did you have the television on? Did you have music playing? Were you strumming your, your guitar or banging your drums? What was going on two hours prior? Because very often, you know, something can... We have what we call in script writing, because I, I write scripts, there's what's known as a plot point, but then there's what's known as an inciting incident, that which precedes the plot point. What happened two hours, more or less, before you actually ingested those tablets? I had been playing my guitar, and I remember I had written this song and ended up being an instrumental on my first album um, called Sad Song. And I just kept playing that riff and those chords over and over and over again. And I just, it, I couldn't speak. I couldn't put words to it, but the music was speaking for me. And so... I did that, and then would always try to close the night with some humor. And I, I know I would have turned on David Letterman trying to get some humor, but it just it didn't connect. And the seeing the humor, no turn upturn of the of a grin on your face whatsoever. It seems no. removed and alien. When did you decide to hit the off button and go into another room? I think it was. All of a sudden, it, just, it was like <laughs> it was like crystal clear that I need to do this. Um, I I know there had been thoughts about it and maybe some thinking about it and different things, but all of a sudden it was just no, I'm going to do this. I, 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 were, were your wife and children in the house, or were you elsewhere? I was downstairs. They were upstairs asleep. I feel ashamed about that, but they were in all in their bedrooms. Sleeping. We had a two, two, um, two-story home. And once you reached out to your brother Wayne, and he realized what was happening, and the medics came in, did your paradigm, the way you looked at the circumstances, shift immediately, or was it slow? And did you enter into a facility for help, observation, or did you just, you know, say, okay, let this wear off, and I'm going to have breakfast, or did they pump your stomach? Oh, they pumped my stomach. I had that charcoal and all that other stuff. I, I ended up going to the emergency. Then I was in the um, the psychiatric ward of the hospital uh, probably a good week after the fact. And to be, on, to be honest, though, Alan, I had another attempt intent a couple of years later where I, again, thought I would end it. But uh, it's a miracle I didn't end up talking to you on the phone. I'm not proud of that, but it happened. What, what were the circumstances the second time, Michael? 
now it's 1996, and I'm going through a divorce. My ex gave up on me, and just and then she was keeping the kids from me. I was just I was just so despondent, and I was living in the apartment, and I just um I couldn't do it anymore. So this time, I wasn't going to call anybody. I actually disconnected the phones. I took a cold shower. I because I've hiked a lot, and I just knew about hypothermia. It's winter time. I opened the windows. I opened the slider to the apartment thing to let cold air in, and then I started drinking and again took all the uh, pills. I woke up two days later. And what was your immediate thought when you woke up two days later? That's when it changed. I said, I cannot keep doing this. I, I have to change. I have to stop this. No more. Because, um, yeah, I, I must have fallen a couple of times because there was blood all over the place. So I, um, you know, banging my head and different stuff. But I was, I was knocked out for, you know, the, the two days and then I came to. And I just, uh, I wanted to live. I, I wanted to change this. I was still hurting over the loss of my wife and the kids, but I, I was going to change this paradigm. I, I couldn't keep doing this. Michael, is there any part of you that perhaps is afraid that you could return to that state again in the future? To be honest, truly honest, is, um, and I've had this conversation with friends who have also survived um, attempts, and we talk about this, and I, the thoughts are still there. I can go through a rough time or a dark time, but I recognize now what it is, and whether it's you know mindfulness or just coming to a, a better understanding or awareness. Just I've learned to sit with the feelings and try to assess well, what's going on. Okay, I'm sad, even if I can't cognitively think. I say, okay, I'm just going to sit with this sadness, and it may last a day, it may only last an hour or two, it may only last a half hour. Um, I have a lot of coping skills. I exercise, I, the music, um, I'll work out, I'll do my shadow boxing, kickboxing, I'll walk through the woods, and sometimes those work, sometimes they don't, but I just learn to sit with it and know that it's going to pass, and that's, I've put things throughout my house, I have little sayings to myself. What are those sayings? That I'm a good person. Okay. And do you, do you have like little affirmation uh, index cards on your refrigerator or your mirror? I, I'd, I'd love to know what, what, what you do because what you do may be of benefit to other people. I read it daily because um, it says I'm a good person. And the one that says, this too shall pass. Um, you know, that I'm good, I'm a good person, I'm creative, I'm caring. I love people. People love me. It's just a whole slew. I used to carry it in my wallet, but I don't have the need to have it in my wallet all the time. It's in a little, it's in a one day at a time book from Al-Anon, and I read that every morning. And then when I'm feeling down, I I will go because it's in my bathroom. I'll go look at it and read and just read it. And there's several things on there to remind myself. But I've also 
put up things. I'm looking at something here. You know, don't quit. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging steams all uphill, there's a whole couple paragraphs on that. So throughout my house, in my I'm in my office now, so there's those things. There's things in my bathrooms. There's things in the living room. All positive, affirmative, um, life-affirming quotes or just saying. So those help me, and so they're there all the time for me to see. Now, Michael, I must ask you, as a, as a fellow musician and a lover of music, uh, do you find, because obviously music can permeate all areas of our being virtually, uh, certainly our consciousness, do you find that certain music is risky that can you know make you slide into depression and alternatively other music music and tunes and songs can bounce you out of it um i still love hard rock metal stuff but if i'm feeling overwhelmed or depressed it's not generally what i'm putting on um because I also like to sing a songwriter i like easy listening stuff i love pop stuff i love motown i guess it's However, I'm feeling, but but that said, I you know listening to Deep Purple or even the edgiest stuff of the Beatles or Black Sabbath, uh, Pearl Jam, all all those things touch me. But if the, if it's too loud, I I go to something else. I'll, I'll listen to the Eagles. I'll listen to James Taylor. I the Motowns, you know, I, the, I love the oldies. I, you know, I, I love all the oldies stuff. So I go, I'll listen to doo-wop songs or I'll turn on um, this, the different healing frequencies on YouTube and there's like this nice background music. I have some really nice, easy listening CDs. A friend of mine is a gifted pianist. I have his CD and it's just these lovely piano written and they're just, I, I just... I chill out to those. So I guess it, it really depends on the situation. Okay. Um, your situation with your daughters right now, I'm sure quite a few listeners would like to know how, how are you dealing with your daughters or how are they understanding your um, experience with depression and for the most part being through the other side of it. Uh, are you close to your daughters at this point or is that a challenge series of relationships at all? That's still the challenge. That's still the heart that has never been fully healed. I mean, I mean, I have a connection with my oldest daughter and her daughters, so I'm a grandfather. Mm-hmm. But I, I went through and I still experienced parental alienation. My, my ex just turned them against me that, that I was weak, I was defective, everything was my fault. And it just, I mean, this is, you know, a couple decades later and I, that still hurts. So when you asked earlier about what is the darkness that may come across me, that is that still hurts. And and I know it's not right to compare traumas or abuse or minimize. And what I experienced as a child was very painful. It hurt, whether it was the sexual abuse, the physical, the emotional abuse. The loss of my daughters has been that has been the most hurtful thing to me in my life and still still finding ways to have peace peace of mind and love and to know that I can still live in this world and be a part of it even if I'm not connected to them but I I miss them every day Alan there's, there's not an hour that doesn't go by that I don't think of them Michael I'm going to ask a question without prejudgment at all 
uh, and without expectation of a particular answer. But it's an issue that fascinates me, and I, and I think in the future I'd like, frankly, us to dedicate a show to it. And that is the concept of forgiveness. Can you forgive a strange... I mean, and, and even at my suggesting this right now, I can guarantee there are people listening to this program saying, are you out of your flipping mind, Dr. Alan Campbell, for saying this? But I'm going to say it anyway. Is there any part of you that can say, not disputing whatsoever what they've done to you was hellish, awful, evil. I completely concur with that. But for your own sake, is there a part of you that can say, I choose to forgive this, I choose to forgive and to be reconciled to a new life? And in turn, can you say that regarding your daughters, or is that virtually impossible for you? Oh, no, with my daughters, that's that's that is there, and I hope that they can forgive me or come to understand that their dad was just depressed and he was overwhelmed with flashbacks that it was nothing they did or wasn't done to them. In terms of my parents, I don't forgive them, but I will share this. What I have come to feel is I feel badly for them because I I do know enough of their background. My father didn't even know who his father was, and he was bounced around between orphanages and foster care and all the rest of it. He he was abused from an early age, as was my mother. So there's the part of me that thinks they they didn't get the start in life. They, too, were hurt. I wish they hadn't done what they did. But I don't forgive their actions for what they do because... Well, I don't I, mean I don't mean excuse. Uh, let, yeah. let me be very clear, f- both for you and for any listeners who may misconstrue what I meant. I'm not talking about excusing, but forgiving as a, as as a, as a mindset, of saying, "Okay, I've got to move on," because um, I'm fascinated, and I've been reading lately about people who have been able to forgive the most heinous things done to them. And I'm, you know, it's premature. I'm not suggesting that you should be there, but the one of the things which I hear you saying right now is the recognition that pain breeds pain. Okay. And so with that, there must be some at least sense of temporal closure with the idea that you are not continuing the pain onto your children, although they may have suffered by the consequence of seeing you go through things. But it's it's not a repeated generational thing, or, or do you suspect it might be? I hope not. I, I've come to learn the statistics, you know, that one in four females are sexually assaulted before the age of 18, one in six males. So um, I I don't know. No one's ever said anything to me, but uh, I hope not. Uh, let I me ask know. you, Michael, let me just ask you another question. Uh, you did say uh, a right earlier um, at one time. You said suicide, it's, it's, it's got nothing to do with being mentally ill. Um What's your standpoint on that? Why has suicide got nothing to do with being mentally ill, in your estimation? Um, well, n- not so etched in stone, because there's too many layers of gray, so let me backtrack on that a bit. I just, it's what happens to people, it's all our experiences, uh, it's, to me, what I've come to believe and see and learn is it's the trauma and the abuse, the hurts, the losses in our respective lives. 
the treatment providers in society then will label all these different manifestations as mental illness. And if they want to say that, I'm I'm not going to argue that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to say differently. That's how people feel. But for me personally, I've just come to feel that it's what has happened to people and how it manifests. My, my dissociation, now if someone's going to say that's mental illness, so be it. If that's what they want to believe. But it's, this has impacted my whole mind, body, and spirit. It's not just in my head. Mm-hmm. It's a consequence of all the physical things and the, and the horrors that I experienced. So that's where, I guess, not I guess, that's how I feel with it. But I don't, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing from you, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I may be wrong, so please correct me. What I'm hearing is, look, don't label me and just by saying conveniently that I'm suffering from mental illness when you haven't lived my flipping life, when you haven't been through what I've been through, when you haven't had parents sexually abuse you, hand you around, had people who are clergy use you and abuse you, and be subjected to all the things I've been through, don't just slap a, a happy label on me of being mentally ill. Is that what right. you're saying? That's Thank you. That's what I'm saying. Um, do I deal with depression? Absolutely. Do I? I call it post-traumatic stress. They say I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm not going to argue or quibble with people. I've just—it's just for me, for me to feel good about myself. Because remember how we opened this—that I never felt good about myself, Alan. That has been part of my healing. Saying no, horrible things were done to me. I experienced things. I experienced losses. I'm a good human being. I, and the whole thing of mentally ill i it's such a derogatory term when people are using it against you because i i went through a divorce court where i just kept hearing he's mentally ill he's mentally ill it 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 made me nauseous alan after hearing it for so many for, for so long i have friends who deal with the same things that i deal with and they say they're mental illness and i don't try to correct them but but for me personally i had flip it around and say, no, I'm not mentally ill. Life has kicked me and knocked me down, and it's all these experiences. Michael, I would like to assert that, at least in my humble opinion, there is a great distinction between mental illness and being emotionally damaged. And I think in your case, what I'm hearing is that you have been quite legitimately emotionally damaged, and you've been bravely trying to counteract that all your life. I have. Thank you. And just trying to raise awareness so that there's compassion for others because um, I'm not the only one that goes through these experiences. Mm-hmm. No, um, you're not. No, you're not. Have for- compassion for fellow human beings. That's why I'm talking to you because these things are still painful for me, Alan. It, it truly yes. is. I hear and it. And I know after this I'll get a cup of coffee or something or some chocolate to ground myself, but... I'm honored that you folks would want to talk to me, and if we can reach one person, then I'm okay with that, because it's... it's Michael, let me clarify it. We are honored that you want to talk to us. Well, thank you. My guest has been Michael Skinner, a musician and a mental health advocate who lives in New Hampshire, and he uh, wrote a segment of a book which has the title, Our Encounters with Suicide, and his particular chapter was entitled The Silence of Suicide, and we are most grateful that he has not been silent with us today. 
Michael, thank you very much. I love your candor. I love your openness. Enjoy your chocolate. Enjoy your coffee. And you have friends here at Watching America. And to go out, let's go out with one of your tunes. You make the selection, Michael, and we'll go out with it. What song of yours that you've written, you've composed, you've recorded, would you like us to go out playing today? Songs for the keys to your life. Songs are the key to your life. They are indeed. Thank you, Michael Skinner. You're welcome. God bless you. To the, the crime stone is all that you see. Once made of gold, nothing so cold. Your hands have forgotten your dreams. Do you even know? Do you even care? When did you drop the keys? The keys to your dreams, the music to your soul. Remember how you once sang to me. Songs with the keys to your life. Songs with the keys to your life. Songs with the keys to your life. Have you sung the song with the keys to your life? Wasting away, what's there to say? Of all the things that you loved all I see is broken inside To love of only your wealth Is that now the dream? Manipulation in schemes You climbed your way to the top Look around, what do you see? The wasteland of all that you loved Songs for the keys to your life Songs for the keys to your life Songs with the keys to your life Have you sung the song This is Watching America from WHRV.